Welcome to the very first episode of Defiant Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. William Davis. Now, before I start regaling you with all sorts of clever stories, let me tell you who I am first. So I'm a, a cardiologist. I practiced cardiology for 25 years, uh, specifically interventional cardiology, putting in stents, doing angioplasty, aborting heart attacks, all those things that interventional cardiologists do. Uh, but I changed my philosophy. I got out of that area and redirected my efforts towards genuine health. Let me. So this this episode, I want to recount for you, not to toot my own horn, but to give you an idea how I went from putting in stents, for instance, to a focus on health. And in this journey, I want you to know that the conclusions I've drawn over the years that I share with you give you magnificent power over health, many aspects of health, whether it's weight loss, reversing an autoimmune disease, preventing a neurodegenerative disorder, not being diabetic, not having coronary disease and heart attacks. In other words, the insights I gained by turning my attention away from conventional tools, that is pharmaceuticals and procedures, opened up an entire world for me that I want to share with you. I share a lot of this in my books, my Wheat Belly books. So the Wheat Belly books were New York Times bestsellers. There's nine of them. And then I wrote a book called Undoctored, and I'll talk about that. So let me start from the top. Let me start from the beginning, which is many years ago. Uh, and I call this episode, Why I Dump Conventional Healthcare. Because... I've essentially rejected many of the things that are done in conventional healthcare. But it started when, many years ago, I was practicing interventional cardiology, as I mentioned. But I was in Atlanta at the uh, meetings of the American College of Cardiology. Every year, the ACC, the American College of Cardiology, has these big meetings with over 30,000 attendees. And industry shows up to show off their medical devices, new technologies. Well, it was very important back then as an interventional cardiologist, to keep abreast of new technologies and new science. So I'd go every year to the ACC meetings. Well, in between meetings, I saw a poster for a talk being given by Dr. Dean Ornish. Now, those of you who don't remember him, Dr. Ornish wrote a book called Reverse Heart Disease, which did very well, sold a lot of books. And he was going to give a talk to discuss his lifestyle heart trial. And this was a small trial of 28 people who participated in his program, 20 control uh, uh, in the control group. And these 28 people were put on uh, a strict low-fat, less than 10% of calories from fats, very strict low-fat diet, and plenty of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. No meats, no animal products, no added oils. And he claims to have reversed heart disease. Uh, he did so by doing a, using a method called quantitative coronary angiography, which is simply a fancy way of saying, kind of a computerized way of measuring blockage. And he reduced the severity of blockage from 40% to about 37.6% in that range. <clears throat> now, he published this and got a lot of attention, but I, I, I knew that there was something wrong with this study. I wasn't quite sure what it was at first, but I gave, I gave it a try myself. I put myself on this strict, low-fat, no-added, no-animal products diet. Well, I gained a bunch of weight in my waist. My triglycerides went up to 390. My HDL cholesterol, the good, dropped to 27, which is a high-risk level. I had an explosion in small LDL particles. That's, by the way, the real cause of heart disease, not LDL cholesterol. We'll talk about that downstream in a later episode. Uh, 
I also became hypertensive. I had high blood pressure. And I became a type 2 diabetic with fasting glucoses in the 160 range. So I called Dr. Ornish. I told him this. And he, he kind of got angry, got irritated with me. and said, you didn't do the diet right. You're probably including lots of white flour products. I said, no, I'm not. I'm absolutely not eating white flour problem. Only eating whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Well, we both got irritated with each other. We both hung up. And I went off the diet, became non-diabetic, everything normalized. But it was a vivid illustration of the power of diet, including the wrong diet. Now, I also did this at the time with about 100 of my patients. And I saw the same thing play out. Drop in HDL, rise in triglycerides, small LDL particles, rise in blood sugar. Now, Ornish defends these changes that others have seen also. He says that the low HDL and high triglycerides don't mean anything in the context of a low-fat diet. Now, he made that up. There's no basis for that argument whatsoever. But I stopped being a vegetarian, low-fat vegetarian following Ornish's program. Now, sometime after that, I was working in an ICU just seeing patients, I get a call. And the nurse says, Dr. Davis, you have a call. It's my sister, my sister, sister from New Jersey. And she says, Bill, we found mom dead in her bed. She died of sudden cardiac death. She'd had a coronary angioplasty, the kinds of things I did. I didn't do it, of course, but she did it in New Jersey. I was in Wisconsin at the time. Well, she had a two-vessel coronary angioplasty, presumably successful, and then was found dead in bed several months later. But it drove home to me that here is my mom who died of the disease that I took care of every day. It drove home to me just how inadequate it was to manage this kind of disease in a cath lab. It, on the few moments of a procedure and then you're done. In other words, you wait for some kind of catastrophe or urgent situation. You take a patient to the cath lab and that's how you dealt with this disease. That is a lousy way to deal with that disease. So I asked myself... Is there any way to identify someone like my mom two years, five years, ten years before tragedy strikes or before you need a procedure, have a heart attack, have sudden cardiac death, uh, or have symptoms that lead to angioplasty, bypass surgery, etc.? Well, back then, this remains true till today also, the only real way to detect coronary atherosclerosis without putting a person through a procedure is something called a CT heart scan. This was so long ago, about 23 years ago, we actually used something called an electron beam tomography device, an EBT scanner, that has since been replaced by what are called multi-detector CT scanners, which are everywhere now. But back then, uh, we opened one of the first uh, scan devices for heart disease detection in the Midwest, one of the very few in the country. We started scanning people left and right. Well, you uncover by doing that. These are people like you and me, feeling good. Maybe you biked, you went for a walk, you went for a swim, you're playing with the kids or grandkids, and you feel fine. There's no chest pain, your breathing is fine. Um, uh, maybe you even engage in vigor vigorous work. And so we're uncovering hidden heart disease in so many thousands of people here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, what do you do? Someone says, what do I do? I have a heart scan score of 300 or 500 or 1,000. Normal is zero. That is no coronary atherosclerotic plaque. Well, people are kind of freaking out. So they ask me, what, what do I do? Now, this is 23 years ago. So I tell people, we'll take aspirin, take a statin cholesterol drug, follow a low-fat diet, maybe add a beta blocker drug like metoprolol. Well, the science was clear. We helped contribute to the science. If you do nothing and you have a heart scan score, say, of 300, it's going to increase 25% per year. And 
and year over year it gets higher and higher. As it goes higher, you get closer and closer to death, heart attack, etc. When you get to a thousand higher, the risk is about 10 to 15 percent per year that you can have those things happen to you. So if you do nothing, the score goes up. What if you take aspirin, a high dose of a statin cholesterol drug, follow a low-fat, low-saturated fat diet, maybe do some other things, exercise, add a beta blocker. How fast will the coronary calcium score generated on a CT heart scan, how fast will that go up? 25% per year. Has no impact whatsoever on this measure. And so I had oodles of people who are freaking out at me, not no, and I didn't know what to do. The experts actually said this. They said, well, if you can't stop the progression of the coronary calcium score uh, from a CT heart scan, just let them have their heart attacks. Don't repeat the scan. Let them have their heart attacks or develop symptoms, then deal with it, which I found miserably unsatisfactory. So I started a search for how to put a stop to the inevitable rise in coronary calcium scores. And by the way, we measure calcium because calcium can be seen easily on a CAT scan. It can be easily and precisely quantified, and it occupies 20% of total atherosclerotic plaque volume. So it's, an, it's a gauge, an index of total plaque. So if I've got 2 cubic millimeters of calcium, I've got 10 cubic millimeters of atherosclerotic plaque because it's the quantity of plaque that determines what your heart attack risk is. It is not the severity of blockage. That's a mis uh, misunderstanding. Even many of my colleagues believe that, but they believe it because it pays better. If they can identify severe blockages, they can put in stents and do other procedures for many thousands of dollars. But most heart attacks don't come from progressive severe blockages. It comes from what might be, might, you might call a minor blockage. A, a blockage or a plaque that blocks only 20% of the diameter, 30%, 35%. But what happens is that plaque is active. It's got active inflammatory cells, white blood cells, red blood cells that can hemorrhage in, in plaque. And when that happens, when there's active inflammation and hemorrhage within the plaque itself, it can rupture to the surface like a little volcano. When that happens, that exposed plaque is very, we say, thrombogenic, likely to cause a blood clot. That's how a heart attack is caused. In other words, you're just walking around feeling fine, but having maybe 30% a plaque that only blocks the diameter of the artery by 30%, but it erupts, and then it causes a blood clot. That's how a heart attack is caused. That's why knowing how much atherosclerotic plaque you have along the length of all three coronary arteries, the heart's arteries, that's how you predict heart attack, not by looking for severe blockages. That just leads to procedures to relieve symptoms. So uh, not having the tools to put a stop to this, I started a search using reasoning, trial and error, and it led to discoveries, for instance, that when you add vitamin D. So up till that time, I'd managed to slow the progression of plaque down from 25% per year, maybe as low as 8% in some people by adding fish oil and doing some other things. When I added vitamin D, it was the first time we saw dramatic reductions in heart scan scores, 700 dropping, say, to 450, or 385 dropping to 140. And you could also see, while well, you can see calcium very clearly on a uh, heart, CT heart scan, you can also see some of the contours of the other elements in that plaque, so so-called softer elements. And you could see that the plaque had shrunk. And so trial and error, several years, it led me down the path to develop the strategies that now we, we now call wheat belly, 
Wheat Belly 10 Day Grain Detox, Undoctored, all the things that I've written about in books. But it was based on the simple idea that we're going to address the causes, not cholesterol. We'll talk about that in another episode, that cholesterol does not cause heart disease. Let me say that again. High cholesterol does not cause heart disease. It's much more complicated than that, but not so complicated you can't manage it. You can, you can manage it, but it's not about cholesterol. And so what were those strategies and how did I come to these conclusions? Well, if you reject this idea that cholesterol causes heart disease and instead do something called lipoprotein testing, assessing the number and character of the particles in the bloodstream that cause atherosclerosis. You're going to find that people who have coronary disease almost always have an abundance of small LDL particles. Not LDL cholesterol, but the actual particles themselves. Lipoproteins are fat-carrying proteins because fats can't float around on their own. They have to be attached to a protein. So there's lipoproteins that play a role in heart disease. So if you measure those lipoproteins, not the cholesterol as an indirect assessment of lipoproteins, but the lipoproteins themselves, you'll see that invariably, almost without exception, people who have coronary disease, coronary atherosclerotic plaque, thereby a positive coronary artery calcium score, almost always have an excess of small LDL particles. Now, those particles are unique in that they uh, are very adherent to the arterial wall. They're more likely to, to get inside the arterial wall. They're more likely to, pro, to pro, provoke oxidative effects in that arterial wall. They're more prone to glycation, and they last longer. Small LDL particles last five to seven days in the bloodstream. As compared to 24 hours, the large LDL particle uh, uh, persists. So I asked myself, if all these people with coronary disease have small LDL particles, what foods cause small LDL particles? Well, the science was actually quite clear, even though this is over 20 years ago. And there's only two groups of foods that are vigorous provokers of small LDL particles. Grains and sugars. That is, any carbohydrate, such as the amylopectin A, unique to grains, or sugars, like sucrose, table sugar, fructose, and other sugars. Those are the only things. Why well, I had my patients remove all grains and sugars. I said, you know, uh, we could try to do this with cholesterol drugs and other, but I don't think they work. Let's try this instead. I watched small LDL particles drop to the floor. They dropped from a high number of something like 1,800 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume, that's what that means, to zero or something close to that. In other words, not just a percentile improvement, but obliteration of that abnormality. In parallel, HDL goes way up, triglycerides come down, uh, the exact opposite of what we saw in the Ornish program. Uh, small LDL, of course, drops to zero or other very low number. Blood pressure drops. But people came back to me and they said, yeah, my small LDL particles dropped to the floor, but you didn't tell me I'd lose 58 pounds. You didn't tell me my blood sugars would drop so much that I'd have to stop my metformin and my bieta injections. You didn't tell me I, uh, 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 my blood pressure would drop so much I had to stop my hydrochlorothiazide diuretic and the beta blocker. You didn't tell me that my rheumatoid arthritis would get better or my rosacea or my psoriasis or my ulcerative colitis. In other words, I embarked on this journey of dietary change to give people better control over coronary artery calcium scores and small LDL. And I stumbled on something much, much bigger. I stumbled on a way to reverse hundreds of common chronic health conditions. That's when I wrote the 
first book, Weak Belly, that became a New York Times number one bestseller and got a large audience for me. And I propagated this message. Uh, now, many thousands, perhaps millions of people have done this with fairly extraordinary results, reversing numerous diseases. Then something odd happened. I noticed that so many people would come to me and they'd tell me, you know what, I told my doctor I was going to do the wheat belly lifestyle. And the doctor said, well, you better take Lipitor because it's going to kill you and cause a heart attack because you're going to eat unlimited fat. And that person would say, no, I'm just going to do it anyway without the doctor's approval. And they do it and they lose all this weight. Their blood sugar would drop. Their blood pressure would drop. They'd feel great. Skin rashes would recede. Joint pain would go away, etc. And they'd come to me and say, I, I succeeded. I did it. I did your wheat belly program. I've had magnificent results. And I did it in spite of my doctor. And it struck me that people have extraordinary control over their health, despite the bungling and the poor understanding of the doctors. So I wrote another book called Undoctored and delivered the same kind of prescriptive program, but I expand the conversation, talk about how we all collaborate to find answers to health questions, how you can use resource to learn new lessons, how you can apply some uh, common health tools to further empower yourself, like coronary artery calcium scores. Well, writing Undoctored. So I, before Undoctored, I was on Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz show four times. I was on CBS this morning, numerous times. I was on numerous TV shows, radio shows, and print media. When I wrote Undoctored, all doors slammed in my face. I was essentially blacklisted. Not just me, by the way. These are any author who has a, a message potentially antagonistic, I believe, to Big Pharma. You may have noticed that uh, broadcast TV and cable TV are packed with ads now direct-to-consumer drug ads. And so the pharmaceutical industry is now a major advertiser to the tune of about $6 billion a year. And I believe that's why I and other authors got blacklisted. In fact, if you watch the news or watch any TV any time of the day, you're going to see almost no negative reporting on health care, certainly no negative reporting about big pharma, uh, and you're going to see no exposés like they used to run on the cost of healthcare, cost of drugs, all the problems, the big, deep systemic problems in healthcare, you're going to find virtually no reporting. In fact, I googled, for instance, uh, healthcare expose ABC for, you know, the ABC station. And the last report they did was a report from John Stossel in 2007. In other words, big media, print and broadcast, have been running scared. They don't want to antagonize their big advertiser, big pharma, so they report nothing. They may report in healthcare politics news, but they don't report on the actual problems in healthcare or with big pharma. So it means that if you want to hear the truth in health, you can't get it from major networks. You can't get it from most magazines. You can't get certainly can't get it from your doctor. So that's part of my goal here to share what I believe is the real truth in health and how you can achieve magnificent health, slenderness, and youthfulness because the doctor, media, aren't helping you do it. Now, more recently, I've added one of the great benefits of my Wheat Belly and Undoctored social media and websites is that they're collaborative. That is, we draw from the wisdom of all the people participating who might be school teachers. Uh, women at home, men at home, fathers, mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, people who work in, in factories, people who uh, fix cars, 
In other words, people from all different walks of life contribute to this conversation. And one of the lessons that came from this worldwide collaboration was that while Wheat Belly and Undoctored programs achieve magnificent results, really, type 2 diabetics often become non-diabetic, pre-diabetics become non-pre-diabetic, hypertension goes away in the majority, wonderful weight loss, reversal of autoimmune conditions in many cases, etc. There were still some residual problems. For instance, someone would say this, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I was on a biological drug, very costly, $4,000 a month or more, a prednisone and an anti-inflammatory like ibuprofen. Well, it's 70% better. I'm off the expensive biological drug. I'm still on the prednisone on occasion with flare-ups and I'm still on the anti-inflammatory drug. In other words, there was improvement, but not outright elimination of that condition. Or people would say this, uh, I'm doing bad, I'm doing great, I've lost weight, I feel good, but I remain intolerant to certain foods like nightshades, like eggplant and tomatoes, or to legumes like beans and peas. In other words, despite the magnificent improve, pr improvement in health, there were some issues that were persistent. So I went, I went, sought out other causes and it led me down the path of the intestinal microbiome. Two things. Uh, there's a phenomenon that microbiologists call the disappearing microbiome. That is, modern people have lost several critical species in their intestinal microbes. Uh, species like Lactobacillus roteri or Bifidobacteria infantis. These are very important. We've lost it because we've taken antibiotics, because we've been exposed to the herbicide glyphosate, which is an antibiotic also. Uh, herbicides and pesticides and foods, chlorinated water, uh, various uh, prescription drugs. We'll talk a lot about this in, in future episodes. But we've really damaged our intestinal microbiome. And one of the consequences is loss of several crucial microbes. There's also another phenomenon that's occurred. When we lose crucial microbes, unhealthy microbes can proliferate and outmuscle the healthy guys. And not only can they proliferate, they can also ascend. They can ascend up from the colon where they're supposed to stay and climb into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach. This is called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, S-I-B-O. And by my estimate, a third of Americans now have SIBO that can show itself as irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, type 2 diabetes, being overweight or obese, hypertension, neurodegenerative disorders, Parkinsonism, autoimmune. In other words, taking control, reorganizing your microbiome adds yet another dimension of success. We're seeing those people who had only had some residual health problems, especially food intolerances, we're now seeing them go away. So you can see this journey took me far, far away from the notion of giving you a drug for this or that, taking you for a procedure. But I believe that we have put together a pro program that truly does yield magnificent health. Now, in future uh, podcast episodes, I'll be talking about all the details of these programs. Um, uh, I want to give you as much prescriptive information as possible because my goal here is to empower you. So thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode.